When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. That 84-year-old man in Kansas City was charged this evening with shooting 16-year-old Ralph Yarl in the head. This was last week after Yarl apparently rang the wrong doorbell. Is this a valid case of stand-your-ground law? Or is this the law of the instrument, which says when all you have is a hammer, you treat every problem like a nail? Here, the instrument is a gun. Our panel shares their thoughts on why it took several days to charge this suspect. Plus, Congressman George Santos says he's running for re-election, though he has not raked in much cash. In fact, he's had to give back thousands of dollars in campaign donations. We'll tell you what his colleagues and constituents are saying. And Grammy-winning country star Brad Paisley is back tonight. He's just returned from Ukraine, and he'll tell us about his meeting with President Zelensky and performing his new song, Same Here, in the streets of Kyiv. Miss your mama. We will talk to him shortly, but I want to bring in my panel. We have LZ Granderson from the Los Angeles Times, Republican strategist Evan Siegfried, CNN's own law enforcement expert John Miller, and Molly Jongfast from Vanity Fair. Also joining us right now, we have Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, a Democrat from Missouri who represents the area where the shooting took place. Congressman, I want to start with you because you have spoken to local law enforcement. We're all looking for information on what happened here. Do you understand what happened? Uh, Well, I think I have a pretty good idea of what happened based on uh, what was presented by the prosecutor in in, uh, Clay County uh, and uh, what I've heard from the uh, Kansas City, Missouri police chief, who, by the way, uh, has been on the job a very short period of time. My first female uh, police chief, who I I think uh, did a a magnificent job in negotiating what could have been a a very ugly situation. And uh, I have all, all praise uh, for the entire Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, particularly those who investigate uh, this issue. But I also think that uh, we have a problem here in, in that uh, I, I think there are a lot of people who are saying uh, that they are happy that uh, the, the man was charged, the 84-year-old man was charged, uh, but they are a little frustrated over the fact that it wasn't, he wasn't uh, charged with a hate crime. Uh, I think you know we need to cool down just a bit uh, look, an 84-year-old man, if convicted, uh, whatever he gets is a death sentence. Is a I'm sorry, is a life sentence. Uh, and you know, uh, we we are right now create. We would right now, I think, have people of goodwill uh, on on the side of right. I, I don't I, I don't think there are uh, anywhere close to the majority of people who are upset about uh, the charging. Mm-hmm. There's obviously going to be some people, but we're right now in a good spot, and I don't think we ought to change it by starting. Uh, to get people to start feeling uh, like they've got to resist being called racist. Hmm. Well, I guess one of my first questions is why did it take so long? This happened, I think he was questioned and brought in on Thursday night. 
Why did it take until Monday for the charges? Uh, I'm not sure of all of it. What I believe, based on my conversation, is that police were doing a, a very thorough investigation. They wanted to make sure that they gave the case file to the prosecutor with as much information in there as, uh, uh, as possible so that the prosecutor could make the right decision. And uh, look, for all of the people who, you know, that's a, a overwhelmingly white county, uh, and there are people who, who uh, over the weekend were saying, well, you know, they'll, he'll, they'll never charge him in Clay County. Uh, I, I think what we need to understand, what both sides need to understand, the, the people who think everybody's always guilty if they're black and everybody's innocent uh, if they're black, is, is, is something very critically important, I think, from my perspective. And that is uh, there are a lot of people who have been programmed uh, to always uh, expect the worst. And they were programmed out of experience to expect the worst. And then there are others who uh, say that nothing uh, is, is racist. And we've got to get to a point where we try to base it on facts and what happened. And in this situation, I think the people of our community are, are feeling a little bit better. Now, gonna, there's going to be some, some uh, lawsuits. And, and that's, a, that's a, another whole situation that I'm not sure that uh, those of us in the political arena are involved with. But for sure... Uh, most of us in, in our community are pleased that there were charges. Well, I, I mean, obviously, I don't know what is in the defendant's head or what he was motivated by. But we do know from the reporting of what's come out that he told police he was, quote, scared to death when this 16 year old rang his doorbell and that he they didn't exchange any words during the incident. So how what, what could be behind that? Well, he also said that he was afraid because the guy was big, uh, which which wasn't true in the first place. But sometimes black people start growing uh, in front of people who are already uh, paranoid when they are around people who are different. So and, don't you? Uh, so does that I, I mean think, that you think that it was racially motivated? Well, here's here's what I think: the the man who shot that young kid did not have a lot of information uh, to make the decision with. The kid was not in his in his house. He shot the kid through the glass door. Um, and so all he could see, black man, young man on my porch means danger. I can shoot. And I think, uh, you know, and I, I think that evidence is, is clear. Um, I don't think that, you know, that there's any evidence that the young man threatened him and, or, or said anything. Uh, I think, you know, the young man was shot and then ran to three or four houses asking for help. Uh, he finally did get help, thank God, uh, or he probably would not have survived. Uh, so there are, there are good and decent people out there. Uh, this is not the, the gentleman who, may, who shot uh, this young man uh, may not be one of them. We will see as we get more facts. Uh, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Good to be with you. I want to bring in the panel now. Um, John Miller, so is this a case of Something in Missouri where they could use stand your ground if he was on the porch? I mean, they have the, sta- they have the stand your ground law, uh, but the stand your ground law in Missouri requires that you feel that there's an imminent threat of serious injury. So, And just because you're scared to death doesn't mean that you should be scared to death. Well, part of it is, you know, the mindset of the person. What did they believe? But it's a tough case because you open the front door and then there's a second door, the glass door, which is locked. And the other person is, we don't have the full breadth of the statement of the suspect in this case. 
We do know that the district attorney said race was a factor. So it's suggestive that there's some statement to the effect of, I saw this big black guy at my door. I didn't know him. I was afraid I shot him. Uh, otherwise, how could race play a factor in his statements? Uh, but it's still hard to say if he's on the other side of a barrier and he doesn't present a weapon, and that's not in the statement, um, what was the threat? So it's going to be the kind of thing that, you know, if it were in New York State, it would go to a grand jury and they would hear the victim's testimony, they'd hear the suspect's testimony, they'd be advised on the law. Um, it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a clear-cut case except for the fact that here's a guy at the door, you don't even know what he wants, there's been no conversation, you shoot him. You better have some story about what you consider that imminent threat before you let a 32-round go at uh, a teenager's head. Molly? It's insane that we live in a country where you can shoot someone because you might be scared. I mean, and that that's legal in some states. It is insane. I mean, I think this is the guns. This is the law. This is, I'm sure, I mean, we don't know the facts of the case yet, yet but clearly uh, they think racism is involved. But it's insane that we have laws that you can shoot someone if you are, you know, worried. I mean, but not necessarily on this. It's not just if you're worried. It's, it's usually if they go into your home. Right. That stands your ground. But this but isn't this, that. Right. But what we're seeing is a culture that's obsessed with guns, that says violence is OK, that, it, you know, in many cases it can be legal. I mean, I think we have a fundamental larger problem in the culture. Elsie. There are a lot of things at play. Um, the first thing I think about is the fact that uh, Kansas City over the last three years has had horrific violence, crime, and that people in the, in the state, particularly in the city, are afraid. And I'm trying to find some space to have empathy for the suspect because, as the congressman said, I don't just want to paint everyone with an ugly stick. But with that being said, it's hard for me to see someone who was born in, what, the 40s? as a white person growing up in American society, your city the last three years has had a lot of violence and it's 10 o'clock at night and there's this black man, as far as you can tell, standing at your door and you're afraid as a white man who's in your 80s. I can see that perspective of it. And also part of that is all the effing racism that informed that white man to make him think that it was okay to pull the trigger, to show up to the door with a gun to begin with when yeah. someone rings your doorbell. Yeah. Who does that? Racism absolutely was involved. Uh, let's just call a spade a spade here. What I want to know is why did he feel the need to have what appears to be readily accessible, a handgun, and shoot him through a glass door? He didn't call the cops. He didn't, even after shooting him, it was a neighbor who treated this poor kid and I think that while it was good that the police thoroughly investigated, I want to see what else was going on here because there's certainly something going on with this guy where he felt that I'm going to have a gun near me. As we've covered, responsible gun owners keep their guns locked yeah. and in a stored safe spot. I mean, as we've also covered, there are now more guns in America than there are people. Yeah. There are. And so it just feels like when somebody, when you're scared in your house, like we said, if every problem's a nail, you know, if you're a hammer and every problem's a nail, if you have a gun at the ready, then you're, maybe you're just scared when somebody knocks on your door at that hour of night. And, and to be quite honest with you, I don't need a gun to scare white people. I have my skin. 
right? And I don't mean to offend, you know, all of America who's, who's white and not racist, but we have a history that's well documented that shows the color of my skin has been used as defense to justify killing people like me, just simply by presenting myself as a black man. No weapon, no gun. So to me, there is a gun conversation, but this is also about the implicit bias that we continue to skirt. Which, which then gets to the reverse polarization of this question, which is, let's put the gun thing on hold for a second, which is, I'm 84 years old, the doorbell's ringing, it's, what time is it? Is it 10 o'clock? 10, almost 10. 10 o'clock. None of, my, none of my 84-year-old friends are coming over at 10 o'clock. Right. I take my 32. I go downstairs. What's going on here? Is this a home invasion? Is it a robbery? And I see a white guy on the other side of the glass door. Do I shoot him in the head? I can't help but think about Ahmed Aubrey, who was killed for jogging while black. And this is a Trayvon Martin. I mean, there's yeah, a history it, it, But you have Ralph Yarl here, who's a 16-year-old kid who is happening to be a good older brother Picking up his kids while black, and that terrifies me. But also, he rang the doorbell, I mean, knocked on the door. I mean, this is not like he was halfway in the living room and the guy comes down. I mean, I think that we have to, you know, we have to, like, take a real look at, A, the way these laws are crafted, but also, you know, just too many guns. Yeah, and also I just want to say that in the charging documents, um, the shooter did call 911 after he shot him. But as we know, the um, 16-year-old was having a hard time getting anybody to help him because what the dispatcher was saying was, we don't know if the shooter's on the loose, so don't open your door to him. Let him stay out there. We're sending somebody right now. Don't open your door. And then a neighbor, a compassionate neighbor, went outside with towels and, like, helped um, staunch the bleeding. And saved his life. And and that's the reason why that whole good guy with the argument conversation when it comes to mass shootings or events like this is such BS because in the heat of the moment, how the hell are you supposed to know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Right. Oh, yeah. And I mean, think of in the charging documents, he says, you know, the statement of the shooter is, you know, as as the person he just shot in the head is going in the other direction is, don't you come around here again. Right. A lot to talk about. Thank you all for your perspectives on this. Stay with me, everybody, because next, police arrested 15 people after unruly crowds of teenagers and young adults spilled into the streets of downtown Chicago Saturday night, what they're calling reckless and disruptive behavior. It's also described as mayhem in some reports. What's going on in Chicago? Police in Chicago arrested 15 people over the weekend amid what they call reckless and disruptive behavior from large groups of teenagers. Young people in the video, as you can see, in Chicago's downtown district were jumping and dancing on cars. They were getting into fights. They were weaving in and out of oncoming traffic. Chicago mayor-elect Brandon Johnson putting out a statement saying he does not condone the destructive activity, but that it is not constructive to demonize youth who have otherwise been starved of opportunities in their own communities. And in separate incidents, Chicago saw another weekend of gun violence. 38 people were shot across the city. Eight of them were killed. My panel is back with me. Um, Evan, your thoughts on what was happening? What is happening in Chicago? I think it's very bad. And I think that the mayor-elect was absolutely wrong for what he said in his statement. What part was wrong? I thought it was absolutely wrong to go out and say that we should not be demonizing these kids. The kids went out, and this was an organized group. It started on social media, and it was 
reports of hundreds, possibly even a few thousand kids going and jumping on cars, pulling people out of cars, assaulting them, causing mayhem and havoc. Now, I understand that Mayor-elect Johnson wants to try to tackle crime by providing more opportunities for people. And I think, good, I hope that actually works because we have to try something that will actually reduce the crime rate in Chicago. But the way he said this, it had two things. It sent two messages. First, it might have signaled to some of the kids who have not been arrested because 15 out of a few hundred is quite a a small drop in the bucket. It might signal maybe it's okay if I do this. But the other thing, and I was talking to a couple of friends who live in Chicago, they have said that there have been some, they've changed their lifestyles and their behavior because of their perception of crime and how it's rising. What are they doing differently? They, some of them don't go out at night or spend more time with friends. They take alternate routes. They don't take mass transit anymore. And that's part of the what I like to call the urban decay loop. We're seeing where uh, increases in crime and theft are causing businesses, mom and pops, to major retailers to have to spend more on security and have many more problems. And then you're seeing quality of life issues. And when residents see that, they begin to say the crime is getting even worse, when maybe statistically it's not. And it just is this loop where it keeps a cycle of bad perception. Where does the loop start? The loop starts with Fox News, right, or the New York Post, or one of those right-wing media channels that is super interested in that video. I saw that video again and again from right-wing media. But you never see anyone say, like, we should work on after-school programs. We should work on education. We should give these kids really great free skating. I mean, there are, you know, there are a lot of things to give teenagers to do that are not like, you know, teenagers want to get together. They want to hang out. I mean, I'm just saying. I hear you. And that's what Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson is saying. I'll read it to everybody. This is his plan for safety at public safety and reform. Enact a one day plan to get smart and serious about crime. Invest in youth and communities. Expand support for victims and survivors. Uh, mental health, addiction care, housing for the unhoused, strengthen police accountability. Here's for um, investing in youth in particular, youth and communities. Um, double the summer youth jobs right. to more than 60,000, target the most at-risk youth, great. Build a comprehensive trauma response network, fantastic. Put youth on a path to prosperity with career and technical education, who can argue with that? Address the crisis of nearly 20,000 unhoused CPS students. Right. And um, support the Peace Book Ordinance, whatever that means. So he's talking about it, but I guess the, the point, Molly, is that it's not that, I, I hear what you say, Fox loves right. to put that on a loop and play right. it over and over right. and over. But it did happen. No, it's not great. But I also think, like, you know, this is not, you know, there were 38 people who were murdered, right? And 38 who were shot, 8 38 who were, were shot, 8 who were killed. Not, you know, two people were shot there, but no one was killed. It was just that the visual was a very, you know, right-wing media visual. And again, I say, like, Focus on giving these kids places to go, you know, parks to hang out in. They're teenagers. I mean, there's a way to sort of, you know, shepherd this energy into more I want to believe things. that, LZ. I want to believe that kids who are doing destructive things would go to a nice park and hang out if one were they, available. Well, they do. I was a kid in Detroit, you know, and I, we had Devil's Night, you know, and anyone from Detroit knows Devil's Night was like, You know, the night before Halloween and you went out, you did basically what you just saw. And every year we find ourselves on national television. Detroit can't be handled, blah, blah, blah. There's an aspect of this conversation that's about teen rebellion. And it's been celebrated in our culture and it's been villainized in our culture. And I don't want to 
pretend as if what's happening in Chicago is in and of itself unique to just Chicago. True, but isn't it against the backdrop of violence in Chicago right now, homicides and... and it's against Chicago. the backdrop of violence in America, not just Chicago. I mean, we just talked about Kansas City, right? And some 84-year-old who freaked out. So it's about violence in this country. I think there are different aspects of this conversation. The mayor is absolutely correct. The teens in Chicago need more things to do. Right. But if there's a conservative aspect of this conversation, that's also correct, and, and liberals don't like to talk about it, but it's true. Where the hell are your parents? Right. I have I raised a kid, so I feel like I have some teeth in this game. You have to stay on top of your kid. And I get it. Life is hard. You got to work. I I balanced three different jobs at one point taking care of my kid. But damn it, I needed to make sure I knew where he was. And so I think that's a part of the conversation, too, that some of those parents need to have a come to Jesus meeting in terms of, yeah, kids need more activities to do. Yeah, this is just about teen rebellion. But also, you're a parent. So parent. Here are some of the stats, John, um, about what's happened since 2019 in terms of Chicago and the citywide crime. Burglaries down, aggravated batteries down, criminal assault, sexual assault, I should say, basically the same. But murder, robbery, theft, car theft is up. So we're having the opposite in New York, which is murders and shootings down. Other crimes are flat. Um, Chicago has struggled with this for a long time. I mean, I can go back through... Uh, five mayors, two of whom I know personally and talk to crime about, uh, multiple police uh, superintendents there, all of whom I knew. Uh, you've got uh, the last mayor who probably lost the election on crime mm-hmm. and the new mayor who's coming in saying, I'm not going to hire more cops and we don't need to make more arrests. We need more homicide detectives to solve the murders because somehow if those murders go away, the murders will stop. Um, these are rookie mistakes, uh, and I think the mayor-elect is going to learn the hard way the same way. And I'm with Evan on this. You cannot say you cannot come downtown bent on disorder and breaking laws and committing damage and violence um, and then back-end that sentence with an excuse, which is, but it's really our fault because we didn't build it. I don't know if it's an excuse, though, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's context. A mixed, it's a mixed message that goes beyond context to me. And I mean, in New York... Chauncey Parker, the deputy commissioner of the NYPD, spent the entire summer after we had a spate of terrible youth-on-youth violence, teenagers with guns shooting and killing each other, 14, 15, 16. The Bronx was the leader in this. We rebuilt all the basketball courts we could. We found the money, dug up the money, stole the money. I mean, we did amazing things with funds. We did the biggest summer jobs program we'd ever done before, and the biggest hire was in the police department, then the parks department, everywhere else. I mean, we really did the all-out approach to answer this question about provide other avenues. And did it work? Um, You know, did it work? We think it worked, but you can't count what didn't happen. We also did all kinds of policing initiatives by flooding certain areas with cops, doing violence interrupter programs, coordinating the two. And we were able to put a dent in it. Um, but we never made excuses for people shooting each other but, by saying it was somehow society's fault. Quickly, Molly. I have a question, which is, if sh- Chicago, you know all these people in Chicago, why couldn't they get it together? Chicago, the, the, the politics overrides everything in Chicago. The police, the police superintendent in Chicago can't fire bad cops. It goes to some politically appointed commission that's, you know, in league with the FOP. Um, things don't get done without all of these machinations. So, you know, when 38 percent of your gun collars are being tossed at arraignment 
and the biggest gun supplier is a gun store just outside the city limits because mm. the state law is different from the city. Right. You've got a system that's been broken for a long time that politics will not allow the fixing of. That's really interesting context. Thank you all very much for those thoughts. So as you know, there have been a mountain of lies from Republican Congressman George Santos, but one thing he does not seem to be lying about, the announcement of his 2024 re-election campaign. We'll discuss how it's going next. Truth challenged Congressman George Santos announcing his bid for re-election in 2024. His campaign calls Santos a, quote, diligent legislator. But Santos is better known for his lies about everything from being Jewish to being a star volleyball player. Santos also has a lot of investigations to answer for. Calls to resign from his constituents and members of his own party also happening within a campaign in deep fundraising trouble. My panel is back with me. So, Molly, um, uh, <laughs> George Santos has apparently re- raised in the first quarter um, $5,300 in contributions, but he's refunded $8,000 in contributions. So I'm no mathematician, but that's not, I don't think, a winning strategy. I'm, I could be wrong, John, but that, that's how I feel about that. We've yeah. seen a lot of crazy financial disclosure numbers this cycle with the Nikki Haley. and um, But yeah, no, Santos is an amazing candidate for Democrats, right? That's a D plus two district. Uh, I mean, he, you know, it's Nassau County, like, you you know, between the lies about being Jewish and the lies about this. And I mean, it's hard to imagine a world where this guy gets reelected. But part of his, I don't want to say charm, part of his shtick is that he does outrageous stuff. You know, he tries to sort of be Long Island's Marjorie Taylor Greene. So he has this Nicki Minaj anti-vax bill. He just authored. I mean, I don't know how this works for him, but maybe he's auditioning for conservative television. Uh, maybe. <laughs> and But you also make a great point. Like, Evan, never underestimate the, you know, constituents' um, power at some point to kind of like the flamethrower, unpredictable, strange court jester, right? I mean, it's, uh, sometimes don't they vote for those people? She cited the Marjorie Taylor Greene's popularity in her home state. Yeah, but they don't really have any alternatives in the primary, whereas George Santos does have a serious primary challenger who is African-American, and we've confirmed that. He was an Afghanistan veteran, confirmed that, and did something that George Santos also claims to have done, which he's, he was a VP at J.P. Morgan. And his name we is fact-checked Kel- Yes, that. we've okay. fact-checked Kellen Curry's biography. In no way is he making anything up. But George Santos, he really doesn't have a place to live he, uh, in the Republican Party because wow. he doesn't really have any committee assignments. He doesn't, I don't know what his diligent legislating is really about, what he's doing. But what he does have is he hired, as one of his first hires in January, a man who is known as a fixer for MAGA. He's a Bannon acolyte who was pushing the January 6th stuff. And there were rumors about him being involved in the actual riots. And that was one of his top hires. He's been out there pushing himself into MAGA crowds because that's the only place that will take him saying, look, I'm a target of the media. Woe is me. I'm such a victim. He's not a victim. He's a con man. We have a long way to go before 2024 in the political world. But here's how some of his constituents felt about him uh, last month when we asked. I don't understand why he's still there. He's completely humiliated himself, and uh, it's uh, 
it just seems like he's detached from reality. We don't know who he is, and we don't like what we see, and it's time for him to go home. I hope he just goes away. I mean, there's been just so much turmoil with response to his, his environment, the environment he's created. John, you know New Yorkers. Is this going to work for him? So I think for Long Islanders who are pretty savvy, it's a fool me once, you know. I don't see this happening again, but also, I mean, we know a lot more about George Santos than we did before. So, A, he says he's going to run again. First of all, how can we believe him? <laughs> Second of all, what's the campaign slogan? Like, re-elect George Santos, no shame? Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't see this as a likely possibility. Got it. But, uh, LZ, quickly. In the midst of trying to decide Speaker of the House, he was hanging out with other Republicans. Yeah. Validating everything after all the lies have been exposed. Yeah. They're not serious people. We have AI. We have gun violence. We have diseases. We got China with secret police forces. And George Santos's ass is in Congress. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, um, be sure to tune in at the top of the hour. Our favorite reporters will be here to discuss their scoops and the stories that they're covering, including what's going on with the Fox defamation trial that is set to begin tomorrow. But first, if your two-year-old spills popcorn everywhere on an airplane, who should clean it up? You or the airline? One major league pitcher has some strong thoughts about this after what happened to his family, and our panel has strong thoughts too. That's next. Should parents have to clean up the messes their children make on airplanes? Toronto Blue Jays pitcher Anthony Bass says no. He tweeted, quote, the flight attendant at United just made my 22-week pregnant wife traveling with a five-year-old and a two-year-old get on her hands and knees to pick up the popcorn mess by my youngest daughter. Are you kidding me? I'm back with my panel. LZ, you're a parent. Would you clean up popcorn that your child threw around the airplane? Yes. You would? I would. Isn't that time consuming? Yes. But it's also my child. It's my responsibility. But to the clean up airline the gave them the popcorn. I understand that. <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't expect people to all have my view. It's just I'm constantly am conscious of my example is what my son is going to follow. He needs to see me clean up the mess. If he sees me pass the mess on, what is that saying to him as a child? Molly. I have three kids, so I would try, but I can understand being 22 weeks pregnant, having two kids, being on an airplane and trying to clean it up. So I think it's more of a question of like, yes, obviously we want to be respectful and nice to our environment, especially traveling with children is anyone who's done it. It's a nightmare. Um, So I do see it, but it also she's pregnant and she has two babies. I mean, it's a hard, it's not the easiest thing to do. You guys are so much nicer than I am because (laughs) I would think that I didn't have to clean up the little teeny kernels of popcorn because I would think they have an industrial vacuum cleaner. Like, I would think that instead of me getting down on my hands and my knees, I haven't either. (laughs) (laughs) I I just bought on a plane. I I didn't see anything like that. (laughs) But, I mean, to get down and, like, pick the, like, little shreds of popcorn (laughs) out of the, on your hands and knees. She also could have said no. Also, Elsie was right. It's basic human decency and setting a good example for your kids. And at the same time, 
there seems to be something a little off with right. the flight attendant. She also seems to be in the wrong because why are you forcing someone, forget right. if they're 22 weeks pregnant or not, to do this? And, you know, what are you going to threaten them with? We're going to turn the plane around or have an air marshal <laughs> yank you off? And also traveling with babies is hard. And traveling it pregnant, it, it's hard. Yeah. I've never traveled pregnant myself, mm-hmm. but I have traveled with a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I have traveled with spilling and, sp- yes. and you know, what you do is what you can, which right. is you're considerate of the people around you. I'm with LZ is I pick up everything I can. And Emily does the same thing. But, you know, kids at this age, you know, people say control your kids. So like, would you like to try? <laughs> <laughs> I called my favorite flight attendant before this segment. Yeah. And I said, what's the rule here? And she said, this is wrong. That's why we have a cleanup crew between flights. Oh. Good. I'm right. Thank you. That's what I got out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John, very much. All right. Thank you all. It was only weeks ago when country star Brad Paisley released the song Same Here to honor the people of Ukraine. And he was on this show to talk about it. Now he's back. He just went to Ukraine. He just met with President Zelensky and he just performed that song in Kiev. He's going to join us to talk about it next. However you talk, whatever you think, from the song that you sing to the drink that you drink, miss your That's country music star Brad Paisley playing his song Same Here in Kiev, Ukraine. Paisley wrote the song to mark the first anniversary of the war and to raise money for the charity United 24 to help build housing for the people of Ukraine whose homes have been destroyed by Putin's war. Brad Paisley has just returned from Ukraine along with a bipartisan group of U.S. senators. And while there, he met with President Zelensky. And Brad is back with us now. Brad, great to see you. I'm glad to be back talking to you. Uh, what a week. I bet. So what was it like to play that song, to play Same Here in Kiev? It's really surreal. About a year ago, uh, I remember hearing about the invasion from Mark Kelly, um, Senator Kelly, who I've known a long time. And I, he had texted me about something and said later on that evening that they were being invaded. And to fast forward a year to be on a train with him, rolling into a station in Kiev, about to see it for the first time with my own eyes. I, it's really something that I never would have imagined uh, in a million years getting to do. And then to stand there with this song and to sing it in front of this, you know, the remnants of, of things that have been bombed and as well as surrounded by people that are living their lives in spite of the air raid sirens, um, I don't know how I was able to even do that without breaking down emotionally. I didn't break down until I got back, and then I did. Hmm. So what were your impressions being in Kiev of how it is a year, more than a year later since the war began? I think the, the main thing that I was left with is that I, I don't know what I was expecting, whether I thought I'd get off the train and see just buildings that were rubble, and it's not necessarily like that. They have fixed things immediately. Like they, there were a couple of uh, young women that worked for United 24 that as soon as I got there, the senators went to a top secret secret briefing and I went for a couple of hours and, and tried to sightsee 
sing the song in some places, do some filming and meet some people that I'd been working with. And these girls that were showing me around were so excited to show me their city in the same way that somebody would who lives in Paris. Um, and meanwhile, but they had sources of pride that are beyond anything any, any of us have ever gone through. They were showing me an intersection that during rush hour traffic had been hit with a missile and left a 20-foot crater. And on her phone, she was showing me what it looked like that day. And then they had it fixed four days later, and they the stoplights worked again, and cars were driving, and they just went back to living. And I've never seen defiant life. Just absolutely, they were going to restaurants. We're in armored cars going around the city uh, prior to going to the, the presidential area to say hello and, and do some more meetings there. And I'm looking out the window at school kids in raincoats with backpacks going home, walking up the street after school. And uh, I guess, I don't know what I thought I'd see, but I guess that's what you do, right? You go, you live your life in between the sirens. I guess, but I would say that just hearing you describe it and everything that we've heard about the Ukrainian people over the past year, their resiliency does seem to be in a different league. They just seem to be stronger than anybody, any of us can imagine. And so, so Brad, what was it like to meet with President Zelensky? Well, it's, it's uh, pretty surreal because there's, there's an honesty and a, and a humility to him that is sort of it's it's disarming in the sense that the the amount of of weight on his shoulders at this point is probably just inconceivable to all of us but it, it's the man was an actor and a comedian and I haven't sat down and talked to somebody that seemed any more genuine so it's it's an interesting thing to see him rise to this I feel like he this is a, a strange situation where it's almost like it's he was the one guy that, that could do this or something. And I think the thing, though, that, that I saw in all of it, really, was every single person from him on down was thanking me as, a, as an American citizen. Thank you. Tell the people of America thank you. And also, another aspect of it that I was left with, more than anything, they just want to be us so bad. They want this. They, they, they want everything that we take for granted. Meaning freedom. Oh, yeah. As well as the fact that they, they really, you know, they, they had it for a minute. They were getting there. They had, you know, when I was driving around the city, there's a Nike store. There's, you know, there's restaurants open. People are, are doing these things. And they don't want to go back to whatever it was before. They want to be they want to be a free nation and a democracy at all costs. Last time you were here, our friend Frank Luntz, one of our panelists, um, offered you ten thousand dollars for the charity if you would have coffee with mm -hmm. him. Has that happened? Yes, it has not happened yet. So um, he did. He did reach out and he said, tell me where to write the check. And uh, I'm going to do that as soon as I can be in the same city as him. He's also fascinating. I want to pick his brain and see. The, the stories he must have, right? I mean, you know a few of them. 
Oh, for sure. The conversation between you two, I wasn't kidding that I'm going to be at the next table with like a menu listening in because I think it'll be a great meeting between the two of you. And I'm glad that that's still happening. So, um, Brad. I think you should be there for okay. sure. Well, I'm going to tell Frank that that's a must. Um, Brad, it's great to see you. It's great to hear all about this. And great, um, great uh, inspirational travel that you've done there and sharing it with us. And we really appreciate it. And we look forward to what's next. Thank you. And thanks to the senators, Senator Manchin, Senator Murkowski, Senator Kelly for taking me with them. They didn't have to, but I think they just wanted free entertainment. It was very nice of them. <laughs> that's, to let very, them go. that's very cool. And anytime we can say a bipartisan group of senators did something, that's also very cool. Well, they introduced me as the largest constituency among them, which was really nice. I'm not elected to anything. <laughs> That's awesome. Brad, great to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Next, some of our favorite reporters join me to give us the lowdown on the biggest stories that they are covering for tomorrow. We've got the latest on the Fox defamation trial and what's going on with Justice Clarence Thomas why he's now changing his financial disclosure forms. All of that and more when I join our panel. Great to see you guys. That's next. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. Here with me, we have Sarah Fisher, Jessica Dean, Athena Jones, and Kylie Atwood. Great to have all of you here tonight. So up first, what's about to happen? in this $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox over election lies. It's set to begin just hours from now. Now, today, there was an abrupt and unexplained delay that spurred speculation of a possible settlement. And now there's a tent that's gone up outside of the courthouse uh, in, we think, that this could shield some of the high-profile witnesses like Rupert Murdoch, Sean Hannity, and Tucker Carlson, who are expected to show up and have to take the stand. Sarah Fisher has been covering this case. So, Sarah, what is going to, is this, let me start with that, is this going to happen tomorrow? Well, it's looking more likely by the minute. If they were to settle, it has to be done before 9 a.m. tomorrow. That's when the judge is adjourning, bringing us all together to start the trial. He'll start by finalizing the jury selection before opening arguments. Now, there were some rumors that we would get a settlement potentially today because, as you mentioned, the start date was pushed back by one day. But as it stands now, it's looking like this thing is going to go to trial. Okay. First of all, there's a lot of hours between now and nine. And I'm sure that the lawyers are working overtime. I just feel that because the reason I feel that is in every single lawsuit against Fox that I can remember, maybe you know of something different, but I mean, off the top of my head, roughly a dozen, they settle because they don't want their dirty laundry aired. Totally. But two differences here. One is that the folks that they're up against, which is Dominion, feels so strongly about having a strong case. They're not just looking for damages. They're looking to embarrass Fox. They're looking to make sure that Fox has to take account for what they put on their air. So that's one. And then number two is that Fox in this situation, if they were to try to you know, get a settlement for this case, that would set a precedent for every single other defamation lawsuit that they face. So this is a $1.6 billion suit. They're looking at a $2.7 billion suit for Smartmatic after this. Do they want to set the precedent that they're just going to settle and pay out all of these defamation lawsuits? I don't quite know, especially because it might not be that Dominion actually gets all $1.6 billion. A jury would have to be convinced that it is awarded those, it deserves to be awarded those damages. For Fox, it might be worth it to see this in front of a jury and see if they can get a lower down amount than what they would have had to settle for. That is very interesting. It is. I mean, you know, it's notoriously hard to prove a defamation case. That's a very high bar. 
But Dominion, again, you, you're the expert. It, you're right. It seems based on everything we read, they're so convinced. They've got the text messages. They, it's all there in black and white. Yes. So I think it's pretty clear from legal experts that Dominion has a strong case on the actual malice legal front, which means that they would be able to likely prove that Fox acted with intent or actual malice when it aired these election lies. Basically, it knowingly aired these election lies. But what's harder is to prove that Dominion deserves $1.6 billion worth of damages. That is what's going to be interesting in court. At the same time, if they do settle... Look at how Fox has already been embarrassed by a lot of the revelations that have come out already. And so you can understand why Dominion would want its day in court, because they can make a big, very public case, lots of attention on this case. But already some of the things that have come out in in discovery, if Fox were to be able to reach a settlement, you almost wonder, well, you know, why did you let all of this interesting information come out that is damaging to the brand? Well, that's a good point. Now, the Fox, uh, the judge in this trial has already said that Dominion can subpoena Rupert Murdoch and his son Lachlan, as well as other Fox executives. So if Fox were to go to trial, we can and should expect those people to be walking through that tent. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what's incriminating that could come out, during this process, pre-trial, we've had to go through a lot of different legal proceedings to see what we could do in the actual courtroom. And one of the things that we found is that the judge has opened Dominion up to potentially interview even more witnesses, gather more information and discovery because of the way that Fox had presented its executive's role within Fox News. That's a whole little thing that I'm not going to get into. But what I'm trying to say is a lot more could come out. And so from that perspective, it does behoove Fox to settle because you don't want to embarrass yourself. But there's a key thing to remember. This is not a televised trial. This is not Johnny Depp, Amber Heard. This is not Gwyneth Paltrow and her ski incident, I Wish You Well. This is a (laughs) private trial. We can't even rebroadcast the audio from this trial. And so, you know, there is a cartoonist that's going to be doing a few sketches. But otherwise, you know, you're shielding them from potentially incrementing uh, incriminating things that we could report on. Mm -hmm. But it's not like the public is going to be hearing what they're going to say. And if there were a settlement, there is there's a suspicion that if Dominion were to settle, they would still demand an on-air statement Mm. from Fox of some Mm. sort of responsibility. And so it's hard to know which would be more damaging for them going through the trial. By the way, their audience doesn't know this is happening. Much of their audience. Not being reported at all in their area. Not at all. And so if their their audience, when they're just completely Fox devotees, which many are, Mm -hmm. they have never heard of this. They don't know what's happening. So it's hard to know which would be more damaging. It... Going to trial or them settling and having to read a statement? Having to read the statement or having to admit to doing something is what's actually the most legal perilous thing for Fox. Because, again, there are so many other defamation suits that they're facing. So if they admit to wrongdoing in this one, it's very hard for them to try to argue their way out of the future ones. Do you think, Sarah, that there are long-term implications for Fox here as well? Like, if Dominion wins, right, and they are able to prove that you know, this defamation case, does Fox then have to actually think about how it is presenting certain topics on air? Totally. Fox is not going to want to put election deniers up front in its programming if they lose over a billion dollars to a defamation suit the year before and if they're facing future defamation suits. The other big problem that Fox faces is that some of their shareholders are now reportedly upset. So there was a Reuters Reuters report today that said shareholders are looking to potentially investigate whether or not the directors of the board knew about these decisions that were being made at the Fox News level. That is a big problem. As soon as you're going to get your shareholders upset, 
Now you have a serious issue. And then what about the Trump factor of all of this? Well, that's the other thing, right? That's a big one. I mean, because all of this boils down to lies that he wanted spread out Mm -hmm. there, right? But he is still, I mean, as of like recent weeks, we cover his campaign for presidency. He's still out there spreading these same lies. Mm -hmm. He may not be talking about Dominion, you know, specifically, but he's talking about 2020 being a presidential election that was uh, full of fraud. And so when you have that happening and you have this lawsuit happening, I mean, as a reporter, you kind of look at this space of, okay, you know, we don't want there to be lies out there spread by news outlets and all that. But when you have a candidate for president who's still spreading the lies, it's sort of like, you know, this case could have implications for Fox, but will it have implications in the space of... Uh, you know, spreading of disinformation. I mean, well, you were just saying, right? Like the, the people who are only watching Fox or if that's their only news diet, right? Like they they don't and they're only listening to Trump. And they also just did an interview. Tucker just did an interview with Donald Trump and mm-hmm. Donald Trump isn't backing off of these. Right, no. So would they still put Donald Trump on the air knowing that they would, you know, have had to pay, cough up millions of dollars, billion dollars because of these? There's a couple of things that they're going to have to think about. One, do you put his allies on the air? The Sidney Powells of the world are never going to go back on Fox Air after this. But then two, do you have to be sort of strategic about how you cut your tape? Do you do all pre-interviews with Trump? You don't air them live because mm-hmm. if he has election falsehoods, are your primetime anchors going to be willing and ready to rebuff him and are going to be willing and ready to fact check him? These are all things that Fox is going to have to consider. But there's also one other problem. It's not just Donald Trump. We have Carrie Lake who might run for Senate. There are a bunch of election deniers that Fox is going to want to go have on their air, and they're going to want to be on Fox's air. And so this is not just a Trump problem. Fox has to kind of do a little bit of soul searching here to figure out what they're going to do for 2024. Yeah. All right. Thank you all very much. We will just be watching the clock (laughs) to see if this is actually going to happen in the next few hours. All right. We also have developments tonight in that shooting where an 84-year-old man in Kansas City, he was charged this evening with shooting 16-year-old Ralph Yarl in the head last week after Yarl apparently rang the wrong doorbell. The prosecutor says there's, quote, a real racial component to this case. Athena's been covering this for us, so we'll have more next. In Kansas City, prosecutors announcing two felony charges for the 84-year-old white man who allegedly shot a 16-year-old black teenager who had reportedly done nothing but ring the doorbell. Athena Jones has been covering this story for us. So, Athena, what's going to happen next here? Well, we know we've seen the charges now. Charges have been brought in this case. There and was it took a lot them of a few days. It to took do a few that. days, and that was a concern. We saw protests outside the suspect's house over the weekend because there was this concern that once again, uh, what's been true in American history for centuries, that would that this man would go unpunished. You know, violence against a, a black person would go unpunished. But now that these charges have been announced, my question is. How's the community going to respond and how's the public going to respond, not just in that county or in that state, but in general? And as is so often the case with these uh, stories with a racial component, if you go on Twitter, Twitter's not real life, but you go on Twitter, there's a lot of talk about, you know, well, if he, they don't have the facts. You know, he, uh, he, if he had entered my house, I would have shot him too. He did not, he never, he just rang the doorbell. There was, he was shot through a glass door. Uh, the probable cause uh, uh, and the, the, the documentation suggests that there were no words exchanged. But the, the thing is, people don't necessarily want to address what is the real issue here. And that is that to a lot of black people, this is not just 
enraging. It's chilling because anyone can make the mistake of going to the wrong house, going to the wrong, going, ringing the wrong doorbell. And, and yet, as, as many have said today, you don't often hear about a white person being um, thought to be dangerous and being shot on sight. And it's also, this is not the first time this has happened. Remember Renisha McBride? That was in Michigan maybe 10 years ago. She had a car accident, went looking for help, shot dead. So this is, this is sort of uh, part of a pattern. And so my biggest, uh, my, my biggest question or, or sort of curiosity is going to be how do people deal with this? Can any bridges be, be crossed? Can, any, can anyone in, in, coming together happen and understanding happen to why, you know, we, a lot of us see this is very, very obviously an issue of, of black and white. And if not racism, then, you know, racial prejudice and sort of uh, lack of racial understanding yeah, a couple things. I mean, the difference here, the, 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 this kid was trying to go to 115th Terrace. He went to 115th Street. Mm-hmm. Just that, mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Just a block off or a, so. Th- 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 Wrong time any, of night. Any of us can make that mistake. It's 10 p.m. And here he is. And I just want, I want to, to show that picture because what the defendant said, who was 84-year-old white man, what he said was the, re- what he apparently told police, this was in the charging documents, was he was scared to death. When he looked at his window, he was scared to death. Right. We are now we're hearing that this is a, a very uh, majority white county. But we also know this this touches on a theme we see a lot when it comes to black children. You, it's called the adultification of black children, boys and girls, mm-hmm. especially boys. I don't actually know how tall uh, uh, Ralph uh, y'all I don't is, either. I want to find that the, out. The, 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 the suspect believed he him to be six feet tall. Mm-hmm. But there's just it's sort of a lack of familiarity. There's a general sort of societal tendency to do this, to sort of. I think that a black child, boy or girl, is much older than they actually are and to then expect them to act much more maturely than they actually are. But in this case, it was really a matter of him. This just added to his fear. He thought he was looking at a grown man. And um, I mean, a lot of black people will say, look, every, a lot of people in the country are, are conditioned to fear black people or at least to fear people that they're not familiar with, a community they, they might be familiar with. So this is complicated. It's multi-layered, but there is to many people very clearly a racial component. And that's exactly what we heard from uh, the, the prosecutor and uh, other, others who've spoken about this in the case. Yeah. What did they, I, know, I heard them say today there was a racial component, but, but what else did they say beyond that? Were they able to get at the root of not so far, because one thing that's interesting is that there, this is not on video. There, are, there were apparently no other witnesses. And who knows if they didn't charge this because they weren't sure if they could, uh, they could prove it. But when, they were, when the prosecutor was asked about this today, why didn't you bring a hate crime charge if you say there was mm-hmm. a racial component? Mm-hmm. His ex- explanation was that the, the first, the, the Class A felony, which is you know, this guy could get up to life in prison. He's already 84 years old, but it's 10 to 30 to life. That's more serious. And so the, the, a hate crime charge, it would be a felony, but a lesser felony. And so they're going with the biggest you know, charge they can, they can have. Mm-hmm. And so others would say maybe they're avoiding bringing the whole idea of race into it because it'll be more fraught to try to make that case. I also think like we should just talk about what happened here. I mean, this 84-year-old didn't even have a conversation with this guy mm-hmm. before he fired a shot at his arm and his head. Mm-hmm. Like, Through a locked door. Just, I mean, it's just it's just kind of crazy to think about. I mean, and 
this guy was, you know, going to pick up his, I think it's his siblings, two, his siblings yeah. right? He, he clearly wasn't, you know, coming up to the house in a very aggressive way, just, you know, coming to knock on the doorbell. Um, and just reflecting on, on that and that that happens in America and um, what it means about, you know, where our society is and the tensions that exist within communities. Um, I just... I just think it's something that like we need to talk about, and it's it's really sad. And there's so much fear, because yeah. we just heard earlier tonight about another case in upstate New York. We don't know about the race invo- races involved here, but of kids ending up at the wrong property, and the owner there shot, oh, man. shot and ended up killing one of the people. They never even got out of their car. Oh, my God. Oh. And so there's clearly a lot of fear, and, and certainly some profit on, on promoting that kind of fear, but we're seeing that it has can have deadly, deadly results. And we should also mention that the 16-year-old it does look like he's going to recover. Yes, um, thank goodness. Uh, thank goodness. Um, he was released from the hospital. His mother's a nurse. He was released, I think, to her care. We also learned about him. He's an honor roll student. He plays the clarinet. He was going to pick and up a bunch his of other younger siblings. I mean, he's he's a, a stellar student. You know, every uh, the kid you would want to actually. Look, here is another picture of him. And the fact that he's had to go through this is, is um, just stunning. Okay, so now tell us about what's happening in Akron, Ohio. All right, so Akron, Ohio is the case of Jalen Walker. He, you may remember this was back uh, last year, June of 2022, 25 years old. This is a young man who had no uh, criminal record, but he ends up in a chase and uh, a pers- then a foot pursuit with police who tried to pull him over. Uh, they say that he fired at least one shot at police in the earlier part of this, this, this car chase, what you're going to see right now, I believe we have video, a clip from one of the many, many body-worn cameras these officers were wearing, and you're going to see the kind of the, the last moments of this, his, his uh, 2005 Buick slowing down and uh, him jumping out of the car. Now, uh, the Ohio Attorney General says, here you see it, this is the police officer arriving, jumping out of the car. That is the Buick slowly rolling to a stop there. And in a moment, you'll see Jalen Walker getting out of that vehicle and running away. And you, you have to listen to it because it's very disturbing, not just to watch, but to listen to. God, it's awful. That's a lot of gunshots. And, what and what we, did you say it was? It's 40? He was hit 46. Well, he had 46 wounds on his body. In seven seconds. In less than seven seconds. And what was the what precipitated that? What they why well, did they shoot? Right they then? believed that he was reaching right. for they, they they described it as sort of a reach across. They thought he had a weapon, and because he had apparently fired earlier in, in the in the in the pursuit, he had fired at least one shot, according to the attorney general. Um, they thought he still had the gun on him. Now later, they found that this recently purchased handgun was in his in his in the front car seat, but they didn't. No. They also said he was wearing a ski mask and gesturing. There's, you know, there's a lot you can't see. We can't see in that video. But keep in mind that these investigators, this grand jury spent more than a week looking through, through this because of all the testimony and all of the evidence. A hundred or so recorded videos and more than 50, or sorry, recorded interviews and more than 50 videos because you had all these responding officers. You had surveillance videos. You had traffic video camera. You had dash cam. And so the grand jury decided not to charge any of them. Not to charge. They believed that this was justified and it, because of that shot that he fired. That they did that they did think he had a gun because And they he did think him. he had a gun and you know they actually they lay it all out. They spell it all out. You know it's very transparent in that case. And they 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 say that this that he was seen on he was captured on uh, on video 
on a separate officer's video uh, with the firing that gun out of, out of the window. A quick question. Um, what does this mean for policing? Because I thought the point of everybody having a body cam was to ensure accountability in the way that they're using weapons. But clearly that's not the case if there are so much body cams being worn, there's so much footage, and we're still getting over 40 rounds hitting this sus- I no, think this is more complicated. Some of the explanations we've heard is that, you know, these are these are powerful modern weapons police are using. And I don't know exactly what weapons they were using, but you can imagine they're probably not in, in that short amount of time. They're not firing multiple. They're not pulling a trigger multiple times. You pull the trigger, you squeeze it, and more than one bullet is going out. Now, they broke down even how much um, how much each officer shot. So some, a few of them only shot three three times, I think, one of them. A few shot like 11 shots and a couple, several shot 18. But part of it also is that once the firing, the shooting begins, right. it becomes unclear who's shooting at whom, where the shot's coming from, and then there's a sort of pile-on effect. But the bottom line is that the, 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 the AG, uh, Dave Yost of, of Ohio, said, look, they, they were justified. Each of them individually reached a conclusion that there was a threat and they were justified. There's going to be an internal review in the police department there in Akron, and they're going to have to account for all the bullets they fired. But as it is right now, you have this, this uh, grand jury of nine people who said that this was, this was legally justified. Thanks for explaining all that. Really helpful mm, yeah. to understand. Okay, meanwhile, a source tells CNN that Justice Clarence Thomas will now amend his financial disclosure forms now that a real estate deal that he made with a Republican megadonor has come to light. Jessica has the latest on this developing story for us next. Justice Clarence Thomas is expected to amend his financial disclosure forms. A source close to Thomas tells CNN that the justice intends to amend the forms so that they reflect a real estate deal that he made with the GOP mega donor Harlan Crow back in 2014. Justice Thomas has also accepted and not reported luxury travel from Harlan Crow. He and his wife Ginny took trips with the Crow family. Jessica Dean has been following this story closely for us. Okay, so um, <laughs> there's a lot here. Yeah, there's a lot. Where here. would you like to begin? I don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Well, okay, if we're looking ahead to what comes next, then it naturally goes to uh, the Hill and, and calls for an investigation. We've heard from Democrats that want uh, him to be investigated uh, by kind of the appropriate counsel that would do that. Uh, they, you know, there have been all these calls for them to have an ethics code. What a lot of people may not know is that the Supreme Court doesn't have a formal ethics code. That has been a shocker. Right? Yeah. It's almost like it goes against everything you would think would be. It's the Supreme Court, you know, high justice. But they haven't. And back in 2019, even, Elena Kagan was testifying on the Hill. And she said, listen, Justice Roberts is really thinking through this. We've been discussing this. Uh, we, You know, the lower courts have this, but not the Supreme Court. And and that was years ago. And, and they just have not quite gotten there. So so there's calls for these investigations. There's calls for them to put together an ethics code by the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin. But the fact of the matter is, Congress doesn't have a terrible amount of power here. And it's worth noting and, you know, reminding everyone that the split in Congress right now is not really set up for any of this to happen, right? Because you have the House that is Republican and then a very slight edge um, for Democrats uh, in the Senate. So the, the question of what happens next is like, 
uh, we're not, it was probably people talk, if we're being honest, there'll be a lot of talk about it, but in terms of action, that's a much heavier lift, right? And so there's that piece of it. And then- Yeah, and I also yeah. want to ask you about what the mega donor, Harlan Crow, right, right. is saying, because we learned, thanks to the reporting from ProPublica, that this has been going on for two decades. Right. That- uh, Justice Thomas and his wife, Ginny, have been taking these very luxurious trips Mm -hmm. with this family, courtesy of their private jet, Mm -hmm. their super yacht. Mm -hmm. They've been traveling. I think Indonesia was one trip where they traveled around in these like. Yes, Indonesia, California. I mean, what they say is that it would have been 500, half a million dollars had the Thomases paid for this themselves. So what does Harlan Crow say about all of this? Well, he actually has a quote that I think we can put up that talks about how they're legitimately friends and that he's kind of genuinely shocked that anyone would question a, a friendship. And I think we can put that up now. I, I could read the whole thing to you. There it is. Uh, a lot of people that have opinions about this seem to think there's something wrong with this friendship. And he says, you know, it's possible that people are really just really friends. It blows my mind that people assume that because Clarence Thomas has friends, that those friends have an angle. Well, I I hear him. Obviously, we want everybody to be friends with whomever they want, but why didn't he disclose it in we that do, case? We support friends on we this show. We support friends. We like uh, friends. But why, didn't, why then was he keeping it a secret? So, just right. And I think that's a very important question because it looks secretive, right? It looks like he's keeping this a secret because he's not dis- disclosing it. And it goes back to kind of this, you know, they have financial disclosure, but over the years, it, you know, it, it's kind of lacked more and more specificity for what exactly you have to disclose. Now, with this real estate deal, just to walk everybody through this latest thing, and again, excellent reporting by ProPublica here, but uh, the real estate deal was three homes in Georgia, where Clarence Thomas is from. Harlan Crow bought those homes. Uh, his Clarence Thomas's mother currently lives in one. So she now lives rent-free, but pays insurance and taxes. Clarence Thomas says he doesn't have to report this because he took a loss on that deal. So he said that he and his wife put in fifty dollars to $70,000 in capital improvements, but he only made some $40,000 on the sale. And so because he took a loss, he didn't have to disclose it. Turns out that's not right. <laughs> so he's now, as we've said, our sources are saying he's going to have to amend that. Um, but And then Harlan Crow in this case is saying, well, the only reason I bought these is because I think eventually there should be a museum, you know, kind of honoring Clarence Thomas and his place in history. So, uh, but look, it, it, the, you know, I work in Washington, D.C. Optics of things are very important, right? So let's just, you know, even if you give everyone the benefit of the doubt here that it really was just an accident and an oversight, and think about what it looks like, right? Okay, question. What is Clarence Thomas saying about all this? Is he using the, like, we're just friends defense? Because <laughs> I have friends, but not friends that are taking me on half million dollar trips. I know. I mean, this and is you unusual. Don't have the right should we get better friends? I, I mean, maybe we should be looking for help. I love my friends, but don't you think that's unusual? Like, is he saying anything about it or he's just hiding? No, he actually took the rare step of releasing a statement when the first bit of this reporting came out about the trips and the, all of that. And and he did comment on it and said, you know, that, again, he, he had been advised that he didn't have to report it. He's going to be amending that. He wants to follow the rules. Um, but other than that, you know, again, like we don't see him out and about a ton, you know, and, and especially the Supreme Court justices on the whole are generally, you know, working and kind of keeping to themselves. They're not out and about all yeah, the time. It's not a flashy job. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it'll be interesting to see how Congress continues to approach this, because 
if they do call him up to testify, mm-hmm. which seems like it's possible. Like initially, Durbin said that he didn't really want to put focal point on this specifically, but he would, you know, have conversations about um, confidence in the court. Right. But now it seems like today there were some comments where it seems like Durbin is more open to maybe having Clarence Thomas come up and maybe even subpoenaing him to come up and talk to Congress about this. So that's going to be like pretty interesting to see play out. Absolutely. Um, and it's just so rare that we see these two bodies of government having to interact with each other in this way. That is such a great point. It is so rare that we see those two bodies of government, those two branches of government interacting with each other this way. It's a very rare thing. I think focus on Senate judiciary for a second. Because of the Democrats' small majority in the Senate, they do have that subpoena power now, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, You'll remember Dianne Feinstein is absent right now, and she sits on that committee, which then kind of deadlocks them, and it's they're having a hard time getting these nominees through. So what does that mean going forward? How does that play out? You know, it all kind of starts to connect back and back, you know, to, to the other issues up there. Yeah, let me let me get Athena in right before we go. Well, you know, I think that people on the Supreme Court, justices of the Supreme Court, should be held to a higher standard. This is or the highest standard, really. Mm-hmm. I mean. It should be something that they want to do. They want to they, self-regulated they want people yeah. to, to to know that they are conflict free. There's full transparency there. I, my question really is about recourse. I mean, even with even if Congress right. were to establish a new ethical code, okay. But like, if he doesn't if he doesn't follow that code, which he hasn't been so far, you know what what then happens? It's a lifetime appointment. But yeah. I do think that people who are in this this high this high position should be held to the highest standard, and particularly someone who had ethics issues. Let's let's call it in his confirmation. Yeah, and look, it's the highest court, right? I mean, you have a great point. And at the end of the day, in terms of recourse, there's not a ton of avenues here, and that's what's kind of confounding about the whole thing. I think everyone or a lot of people would look at this and be like, well, I'm sure there's some. Something will happen. There'll be some sort of, you know, something they can do. And it's, it's, yeah, they kind of, there's not a ton that they can do. Again, it's just a very, very unique branch of government in that way. Yes. Very interesting. I mean, maybe now they will establish a code of ethics. Yes. And maybe yeah, this maybe is the this impetus is, that gets yes, them there. And maybe the other justices are now learning something that they shouldn't go on trips with mega donors <laughs> yeah. to either party. Yeah. 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 Excellent. All right. Meanwhile, <laughs> the Pentagon is still working to figure out if there are more classified documents that were leaked online. Up next, Kylie has new reporting on that. The alleged leaker of those highly classified documents is in custody, but the Pentagon is still trying to determine the extent of the damage. One official tells CNN that General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joint Chiefs of Staff is, quote, pissed at the leak and deeply concerned about its national security implications. OK, Kylie, you've got some new reporting. What's happening? Yeah. So, I mean, we now have Mark Milley, who is one of the top officials at the Pentagon who's pissed about this. And that's just significant because I think a lot of people have been downplaying this information that's out there. You know, oh, it's not altogether surprising. And, you know, a lot of this we knew, or maybe the Russians already knew this information about the Ukrainians' military capabilities. But 
If you have Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, being frustrated about this, there's reason to believe that there is actual concern for the national security implications for the United States and, you know, for the Ukraine war and the like. Obviously, we have to, like, dig into that a little bit more to find out exactly why he's so frustrated. But I do think that is something for us to consider very seriously. Help us understand this. Is it crazy that a 21-year-old IT guy had access to all of this top secret information? Or do millions of people have access to this? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think a lot of people have been dwelling on his age. His age doesn't really matter, right? We have um, Americans who fight wars for us, and they have to have access to top secret information in order to effectively carry out their duties on the battlefield. You know, there are plenty of men and women in Washington who have top secret security clearances and are very young. The age doesn't really matter. It's a question of what was the process like for him to get this top secret security clearance, right? How long did he have, how long was he vetted for? And when he was initially vetted, did they go back and vet him again after he had already been on the job for a while? And were his bosses watching over him while he was doing his jobs? Did he have the capability to print documents or was he actually stealing those documents from someone else in the office, right? So there are a lot of questions about his security clearance, but it's not necessarily, you know, that he was an airman who had this top security clearance. I think it's more having to do with the process related to how he got the clearance and then the follow-up after he got it. Question for you. The platform that he leaked all these documents on is Discord, which is one of many newer, you know, sort of social media chat type of apps. Forever we've heard the national security community talk about, oh, Russian disinformation on Facebook or on Twitter. But are they paying attention to these types of apps? Because it seems like more and more often I'm hearing about things on Discord. I'm hearing about things on Reddit, places that don't sound like they're part of everyday conversation in the Pentagon, but maybe they are. Mm. I think that's a really good question, and it's what what the national security community, the intelligence community, is now asking itself right now. Because the fact that these documents were on Discord for months before the Pentagon actually started to investigate this, before the Department of Justice started to investigate this, after the New York Times was alerted to these documents being on these social media sites, indicates that the intelligence community probably has to do a better job of monitoring what are a number of social media sites to make sure that this kind of thing isn't happening. Um, And I also think, you know, when we talk about it being on these documents having been on Discord, just to remind folks, it wasn't as if he dumped these in in one fell swoop. Mm. It was over the course of months and it was, you know, different dumps on different topics at different times. And so that's why we're seeing this slow drip of information Mm. come out because some of those documents lived on Discord for a while and then were taken down or were put onto different social media sites. And so now we're watching in real time as those documents are found on corners of the internet, and reporters are able to report on different U.S. classified secrets as they find these documents. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, any PR person will tell you it's the drip, drip, drip that will kill you. Like, it's just like it keeps coming. There's more and more stories. Uh, But, like, I'm curious, though, like, Kylie, where are we with the fallout in all of this? Because we know Millie is pissed. (laughs) 
clearly. Yeah. But like, where are we in terms of, of where we are with our allies, with our adversaries? Like what happens now with all of that? So when I talk to U.S. allies, particularly Five Eyes countries, and so those are the countries that we share intelligence with. So that those are the Brits, the Canadians, the Australians, and the New Zealandites. Um, <laughs> when you talk to them, they are extremely frustrated because they share intelligence with us and we share intelligence with them meaning that this classified top secret U.S. intelligence information could have come from their sources. Mm. And now it's out in the open and that jeopardizes their capability to continue collecting that intelligence. So they're extremely frustrated. But what they're not saying right now, at least, is that they're going to stop sharing with the U.S. So I think this is, you know, uh, this is a road bump. And this is not a great situation, but they do appear to be getting through this and recognizing that this was, you know, one uh, airman, a 21-year-old who was doing this to impress his friends, and hopefully they can get beyond it. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the implications in terms of the changes that need to be made to security clearances and the like, that's what we're watching play out in real time. And this week, Congress is going to have um, a briefing expected later this week, a classified briefing to kind of bring them up to speed as to where the Department of Justice criminal investigation into uh, Tahita actually stands, and then also where the Pentagon's investigation into the implications of these documents stands as yeah. well. Yeah, and very quickly, because we have to go soon, but, but Athena, you were asking something funny, which is like, why can't an alarm bell ring if you print <laughs> out something? But did he print it out or did he take like a screen grab of the stuff or write it down? What it looks like is he took the documents, folded them up, and put them in his pocket. And I say that because... All of them have four wrinkles mm -hmm. on them that would show where you, you know, would actually fold up documents, took them home, and then took pictures of them and put them onto these social media right. sites. So I think it's right. We do need a bell to go off when you and print something. But we think also that would be know. there. That would somehow exist. Right. But we also like we don't know if he was the one who printed them. Mm. He could have been picking them up from other people's desks. But the printer log is going to be key here. Okay. Yeah. We shouldn't have been on their desk, though, also. <laughs> Just sitting there. There seem to be a few problems. Thank you very much for all of that. Okay, up next, on the lookout, our reporters are going to tell us what they're looking out for on the horizon. Okay, our wonderful panel of reporters are going to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call this On the Lookout. Okay, Jessica, what are you All right, Ron DeSantis, Florida governor, potential 2024 candidate, heads to D.C. tomorrow to meet with GOP lawmakers. And when Trump is demanding that everyone get on board, it's going to be very interesting to see who meets with him. Oh, so yes. I'm watching that. And then the other thing that everyone needs to keep watching is the debt ceiling, because that is continuing to kind of come to the forefront. And that is what we're going to be talking What's about What's the deadline? Lot. It's in the, in the next several months, but they're just not moving very quickly. And But there is going to be some movement this week with the Republicans. So, um, But I don't think it's going to actually go anywhere. <laughs> More theater, Allison. <laughs> Great. <laughs> oh, good to hear it. Fantastic. Yeah. So okay. watching those two things. <laughs> Sarah, what are you keeping on? So Netflix reports earnings tomorrow after the bell, and they had a huge disruption yesterday. Folks were trying to watch the Love is Blind reunion live, and it crashed, and it didn't work. So they're going to have to explain to investors what happens. But then the other big thing we're watching is that Google CEO Sundar Pichai did an explosive interview with 60 Minutes on Sunday, basically saying that he doesn't know how his AI works. That's going to be a story that we're going to be following up on for years to come. I mean, we all need to be listening to him sound the alarm on that. Mm -hmm. If he's saying he doesn't understand how their AI mm -hmm. works, I think we all need to take heed of that. I agree. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. Kylie. 
Ukraine. Um, there's going to be hearing on Wednesday. The chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee is holding a hearing on the atrocities that Russians have committed in Ukraine, the war crimes and the like. And his goal here, according to sources, is to try and get Republicans who are wary of continued support for Ukraine on board with the need to continue supporting the Ukrainians. So we'll see how that goes. But it's going to be a pretty moving hearing and we'll see if politically it works for him. OK, thank you, Athena. Well, in Akron, we've seen already this grand jury reach this conclusion not to bring charges against these eight officers, but there's still going to be an internal investigation by Akron Police Department into you know, whether they acted appropriately. And we understand, at least from the, the lawyer representing the family of Jalen Walker, that they do plan to file a, a, civil, a civil case, a civil suit. Uh, he said that they would do it by the time of the first of the anniversary of Jalen Walker's death, which is in, uh, in late June or so. So maybe not tomorrow, but that's what we're looking for in the coming days out of that case. And in terms of just the community, how do they respond? Because again, seeing that video, which has resurfaced, you know, people may have forgotten about it, but it's, it's re-traumatizing in a lot of ways, seeing that many hearing uh, that many gunshots. And so people might, you know, we'll see what they, how they respond. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, ladies, thank you so much for sharing all of your reporting with us. Thanks it's so great to have you all of here so tonight. Okay, yeah. make sure you tune in to CNN this morning tomorrow. Don has a one-on-one with Billy McFarland. That's the convicted fraudster behind the bogus fire festival who has plans for a sequel, we're told. So be sure to tune in starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. And thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.